Sequel Quest, Episode 81, a sequel to The Iron Giant. Welcome to Sequel Quest, the podcast where Adam, Jeff, and Jeremy invite you on a cinematic adventure to create prequels, sequels, and reboots to your favorite movie franchises. Joined by special guests along the way, Sequel Quest is go for launch. So let the adventure begin now. Welcome, citizens of Rockwell, Maine, and massive metal alien creatures alike to this episode of Sequel Quest. We haven't handled many animated movies in the past, but we're correcting that tonight by imagining a sequel to what many considered underrated film of the late 90s. But first, let me introduce you to our animated podcasting crew. Currently finding himself tangled in electrical power lines, it's the Iron Jeff. Ahoy, hoy. Also the name of a failed cable cooking competition show. Ah, <laughs> I get that. <laughs> Next up, you can always find him hanging around the junkyard looking for a snack. It's the Jeremy <laughs> Giant. I gotta insult Jeremy every once in a while. <laughs> I hope they've seen this movie, otherwise this is very awkward. Finally, jittery and rambling like a lunatic after one cup of espresso, I'm Adam. Here we are talking about a film, like I say, it's underrated in many people's eyes or just ignored by the public at large in many cases. <laughs> I, I think it's one of those movies where it's kind of like, that happened? Yeah, I, th I think I recall something about that. Or you're like super passionate. And you're like, that's the best movie ever. In fact, Jeff, why don't you tell them about one particular member of a sequel quest nation who was a little bit passionate about us not doing this film. The fellow we've had on a couple of times that Adam and I went to high school with Eric, who did our mighty ducks podcast, as well as what was the other one he did field of dreams, field of dreams. Of course he, we bring him on for sports. Uh, even though he said he's not really into sports anymore, but uh, <laughs> uh, this was his one. Like this is, has been his passion movie for years and years and years. In fact, and I even joked with Adam. Well, not joked. I mentioned it to Adam. Adam joked about it. Uh, is that the last time he was on, he specifically said, just promise me you'll never do a show about a sequel to Iron Giant. And here we are. <laughs> yes, I even reached out to him. I said, if you want to lodge a formal complaint, <laughs> we will read it on the air. But he was so distraught, he couldn't even bring himself to that. So yeah. hopefully we will do right by you tonight, Eric, and the rest of you fans out there. But for those who are not fans, I think just right up top, Jeremy, why don't you tell them a little bit about the film we're going to be discussing the future of all right this is 1999's debut of one vin diesel the iron giant is that really how we promote this okay sorry <laughs> well i mean looking at the other names it's like most people haven't heard of them of Jennifer Aniston? Who hasn't heard of Jennifer Aniston? Oh, that one chick from Friends? Oh my gosh, <laughs> you kids. You Christopher kids. McDonald, Shooter McGavin, John Mahoney, oh. the dad from Frasier? Or, well, uh, <laughs> Harry Connick Jr. Again, these are all very 90s names. No, no, no. This is a star-studded cast, I think is what <laughs> should be said. But continue. Uh. I apologize for interrupting. All right, so this Warner Brothers Pictures movie stars, as we've mentioned, Jennifer Aniston, Vin Diesel, 
Eli Marienthal, Harry Connick Jr., Christopher McDonald, and John Mahoney. Directed by the Disney wonder kid, Brad Bird. At the height of Russian paranoia surrounding the launch of Sputnik, a young boy befriends a giant robot from outer space while a paranoid government agent seeks to destroy it. There you go. Follow. But yeah, the Iron Giant. Now, this is a movie, again, that I personally ignored upon its release in 99. Like, a, like most people, I feel like. I was too busy with... The, you know, the second Austin Powers movie, Big Daddy with Adam Sandler, oh, the beauty oh, pageant geez. mockumentary, Drop Dead Gorgeous, Mystery Men, Man on the Moon. So, yeah, I have great taste in film, obviously. That's what I was buying tickets for at the theaters. But I think I was just, I was 17 years old and not interested in animation that wasn't ridiculous like The Simpsons or violent and Japanese like The Giver. <laughs> If you guys look at the animated films that were actually the highest grossing films of that year, you had Toy Story 2, Fantasia 2000, and Tarzan from Disney. You know, I saw most of those. The only reason I saw Tarzan, though, is it was the first movie advertised in digital projection at our local theater. And I wanted to see that crisp, clean picture. I had to have that experience. The movie, to me, was very forgettable. But also that year in animation, there was Pokemon the movie, South Park, bigger, longer, uncut. I mean, the Iron Giant didn't even make the top five, despite, you know, maybe some superior animation to some of those films. And there's that star power that was mentioned. Uh, I don't think there were any huge names that were like megastars at the movies, you know, you had Jennifer Aniston, you had Harry Connick Jr. kind of running on well, cubes from Independence Day. You know, Vin no, Diesel hadn't it broken no, yet. that's not true. But that part's <laughs> true. Is that Well, not only that, but if you see this movie, this is another I Am Groot, where it's literally Vin Diesel has two words he says. Most of the movie he's grunting, and then he ends the movie by saying, I am Superman. He literally says, like, you can count how many words he says. on. So he almost doesn't deserve credit for, like, being in this movie. But Jennifer Aniston, I would argue, was a huge star in 1999. Because at the time, this is kind of when DreamWorks was really doing their, like, Sinbad the Sailor. But it wasn't Sinbad the Sailor. It was, come see Brad Pitt and so-and-so and so-and-so in... Sinbad the Sailor. Like it, it, but this was not how they advertised it. Like I was when I saw it, I was shocked to see that they were I'm like, oh my gosh, because I recognized the voice. I'm like, don't don't I know that voice? And I, you know, again, there's a lot of voices, even the ones that you don't necessarily recognize the names, like again, Christopher McDonald, John Mahoney, James Gammon, is that you hear the voice and you're like, dude, I totally know that voice. And as soon as you see their picture, you're gonna be like, Oh yeah, 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 that's where I know that guy from. Jeff, you were passionate about it. Jeremy, you've been quiet somewhat. So where do you fall on the Iron Giant? I remembered it. It had somewhat of an impact, but it it was just one that I could go back and watch. And so when it found its way onto Netflix, I was like, ooh, add to the queue. Have watched it a couple times. Like for me, it's one of those things where I didn't, again, I like, I ignored it. So I didn't watch it till my kids started watching it. They love giant robots. So literally I was like, oh, look, it's in the Walmart discount bin. Let me pick that up. So <laughs> still to this day, not getting any respect, you know, and, uh, uh, but then they, they watch it back to back to back. Like they would watch it over and over again, especially my daughter. She's three and she's like, I want to watch robot movie. And so we just 
put it on and she, it's amazing or she loves every moment of that film it's just she's riveted jeff have you showed it to your son yet or does it play in your house often right well i mean he's one so he's not really watching <laughs> tv at this point i didn't see this in i'm trying to remember when i saw it it took me a while as well and it's it's going to sound really strange but i saw two movies back to back maybe not on the same day but i think it was back to back days and I walked out of seeing those two movies with a renewed faith in Hollywood, where I'm like, oh my gosh, Hollywood can actually make great movies. The first one was Iron Giant, and the second one was actually the original, the first Saw movie, that were brilliantly well-made movies that got a bum rap. And for me, yeah, this movie, it's very subtle, and it comes across as kind of a kid's movie, but there's just there's so much to it, and there's so much emotional content. And even, like, I'm bashing on Vin Diesel, but Vin Diesel is an amazing vocal actor. The way that he can do it, I mean, even when you go back to, like, Guardians of the Galaxy and you watch Groot and how much he does actually convey with those three words, he does the same thing in this movie. I mean, a lot of it is Brad Bird's direction and everything, but the emotion that this robot conveys by barely speaking is amazing. The the very last one where he thinks he, not to ruin it, but because uh, it, it's not a ruin, it doesn't actually happen, but he thinks he's killed Hogarth, and the expression on the robot's face is heartbreaking, where it's just, oh man, it does it so well, especially in an era where it was like, there was a lot of bad animation going on in 99. Like, I don't think, wasn't, was Pixar around yet, even? Well, yeah, yeah, that's Toy Story 2, came out the same year. That's what we're okay. saying. Okay, but, but then Disney, you also got Tarzan. Oh, it was yeah, Disney like, yeah. was making garbage. Yeah. DreamWorks was just filling up with garbage. Like, it was just, and not only that, but because of that, Pixar had kind of ushered in the whole CGI era, and this is hand-drawn. And so that kind of brings back that nostalgic feel to it, I think. Yeah, I mean, the thing that's special about this movie is it, it is 2D animation except for the giant himself. He was created with computer animation. It's actually really? the first time an animated film you know, that was 2D animation incorporated CG characters into it as like a main character, not something in the background. Because I know like... Huh. A little bit later, Disney started doing some stuff kind of like that with like Treasure Planet and just a lot of those right. weird movies they were doing, you know, a few years later. But you brought up a very important name in all this, Jeff, and that's Brad Bird. And he didn't become a household name until The Incredibles and obviously the movies he wanted to do, Ratatouille and everything else. But to me, like I knew him from his work on The Simpsons. Because I've listened to every episode commentary for seasons one through 12 <laughs> wow. at least three times. I love those commentaries. And Brad Bird's name is constantly mentioned, especially in the early season sequences with Krusty the Clown. He just loved Krusty. And so he would come in. He, he was called an executive consultant, but that's basically like a character layout artist. So it wasn't like he was directing episodes or anything like that. He would just have specific sequences and he'd say, look, I could do this. Let me let me take care of this and give you some just brilliant facial expressions and just the, the whole setup of the scene. And I think he is a, a master behind that. But I don't know if you guys have seen 
any making of footage on the Pixar movies that he's done. If you've gone to the second disc, but he is like a maniac in terms of like high energy demanding perfection from his crews. And if you watch the footage, they look genuinely frightened half the time, <laughs> you know? but then the interviews always end up with people praising his genius, you know, but so he sounds kind of like this difficult, but passionate artist, you know, that people are like, Oh, he's brilliant. But man, sometimes he'll just get in your face if you don't know what to think. But this was his first movie having never really directed again. Like I said, he, he worked on King of the Hill. He worked on like family dog. He worked on what was, I don't know. I mean, he, he did like these random shows, but he was not even like a genius of animation. He was just well-respected and somehow talked his way into creating this movie. But do you guys know even the origin of the Iron Giant character, Jeff? Are you familiar with where this comes from? Uh, just from Wikipedia, talking about the poem, The Iron, what is it, The Iron Man, I think? Yeah. Well, it's, an, it's an actual novel. Yeah, yeah. it's an actual book. Oh, right. oh, you're saying Ted Hughes, the author, is a poet? Right, Ted Hughes is a poet. Well, I'm literally reading it from Wikipedia right now. <laughs> is that, uh, yeah, Iron Man, and then in the 80s, uh, Pete Townshend of The Who... Uh, uh, adapted the book into a concept album, Iron Man, the musical. Yeah. Right. So that was Pete Townsend is involved and he's developed it. He's got all this music. They're going to make it a movie. They bring Brad Bird on and he's like, mm, I think we're going to take this in a little different direction. You know? <laughs> so Pete Townsend stays on as executive producer because they were kind of initially basing the whole project on him. And when they asked him, they're like, hey, you know, how'd you feel about your music not ending up in the movie at all? He's like, eh. I still got paid. <laughs> uh -huh. So he was just fine with it. But I just think it's interesting, yeah, that you have the, the the original book, The Iron Man, which obviously conflicted with Marvel's Iron Man and maybe Black Sabbath had an issue with it as well. You never mm. know. But uh, it, 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 yeah, just the whole development, how it all came together, because it is it's like it's like an indie animation movie in right. a way. I mean, it's backed it by like Warner it. Brothers. Yeah. But they gave it a really small budget. He didn't have a huge crew on it. But I just think it's so interesting because they basically just he gave groups of people a scene to work on. He's like, hey, you do this scene, you do this segment. So it wasn't, you know, it was like everything was kind of carefully focused on during the, the process. It wasn't like, ah, here's our, our wide swaths of ideas. It's like, no, work on this and work it till it's perfect type of thing for the few months they had to put it together. But do you guys have, is there a moment in the film that stands out to you that you can maybe point to like, this uh, is probably why people think this film is so intense. Jeff, you mentioned one earlier, but Jeremy, is there one for you? When you say you've seen it a few times that stands out? Well, the opening introduction to the giant at the power plant yeah yeah getting caught in those power lines definitely as i referenced at the top of the show that's like that's actually my kid's favorite moment yeah <laughs> whoa light show so wow. oh yeah yeah that's pretty unforgettable yeah because like it's funny like you're saying adam watching it over and over again with your kids i don't think i can handle it because like that final scene like there's not a dry on the house when he sacrifices himself at the end like oh man that is heart-wrenching I, I yeah I, it's a brilliant scene but i couldn't handle it multiple times a day uh, i sorry kids <laughs> i gotta go yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean that the moment for me that stands out i'm gonna save as an introduction of my pitch but it's not 
an action film, right? I mean, it has these moments sprinkled throughout and then it has like the big climactic ending, but it's not a, you know, even though he pretends to be Superman, it's not a superhero type film. It's not really even a sci-fi film other than to say there's this robot, right? It could have just as easily been, you know, a character from a, a foreign country or something. Right. It's, Fred it's, Hogarth. it's E.T. I mean, it's almost the exact same story as E.T., except for instead of it being a little frog-looking creature, it's a giant metal robot. Wait, E.T.T. looks like a frog? Doesn't he, though? <laughs> He's got all the wrinkles and... Yeah, <laughs> Totally. Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, I know officially he's based on Albert Einstein, but little Albert Einstein looking alien. That sounds weird. <laughs> well, I guess there is that Probably moment with like... the frogs. See, that's true. Too, although he wasn't technically that. Anyway, um, but the one thing is too that I think is also interesting, especially for our generations, and certainly like obviously your kids' generation and stuff like that. But is that I, that I think was one of the issues that this movie faced is that referring to the the Red Scare is kind of something that our generation doesn't really understand, I don't think. I mean, to talk about the era where they, like, were teaching kids to stop, drop, and roll in case of a nuclear bomb, and people were, like, building bomb shelters and living in constant fear of nuclear annihilation, I mean, that happened. I mean, that sums up, like, the 60s and the 70s. I know from my parents, like, both of my grandparents built bomb shelters out in their backyard. But for us, I don't know that we connect to it as emotionally. Uh, I mean, that was even my thought too, even like when you go to look at all of the things that went wrong with Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. But one was switching it out for communists because people are like, communists? I mean, we get why Nazis are bad, but does anybody even remember why communists are bad? I don't (laughs) think that we have that same connection to that era if they would have said this is a Nazi, you know, like this was in World War II and this is a Nazi war machine, I think people would have gotten the evil much easier than the whole Red Scare thing. Yeah, I think like you said, Jeffy, for us, we were there watching the end of the Cold War. Right, so, which, so seemed, to us, which kind of yeah. fizzled away too. So it was like, Meh, no big deal. Exactly. So, I mean, it, it go back to our uh, – our last episode talking about patriotic films. If you want to get into all of that, Rocky four and red Dawn and what have you. But I think also that setting, you know, just like this small town in Maine is pretty interesting because it, it opens up like, it's weird that you don't really spend too much time with the characters in town. Like it feels like actually a pretty small cast altogether. But then when the government, is invading that area, you really kind of feel the danger of it. And especially, again, that Christopher McDonald character, this agent who is, like, vilifying everybody, essentially, and then just is so manipulative. Like, I I find him to be so fascinating. He's not a character from the book. I don't believe Dean was either. But to, to throw him in there and how he's really just working his way into Hogarth's life. Like, I, I originally watched this movie, like I said, just in the background. And he was always hanging out at their uh, house. And I was yeah, like, why is he really in creepy. their house? Yeah, like, why does the mom allow this? Even though he's a government agent, it, you think they're having a relationship if you're not paying attention to the movie. Like, I was like, oh, that's her new boyfriend? And he's a government agent? And he's figured out that Hogarth has a robot friend? Like, and then I finally sat down and watched it all the way through. I was like, oh, no, this is wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And then at the end, when he launches the nuke, 
Like, yeah. that is crazy. Like, this guy is just a coward and overreacting, tried to get fame and respect, and then almost kills a bunch of people. Anyway, I think he's a great antagonist character in, in the whole mix. I, I And again, Christopher McDonald's just the ultimate villain for yeah. those of us who grew up with Happy Gilmore. <laughs> or Dirty Work. If you like Dirty Work, he's not bad at that one either. I mean, he's bad, but he's yeah. not bad at being bad. Well, Brad Bird himself has said, just like Eric, no sequels, please. There's no need for a sequel. I'm happy with it being a standalone. You know, I would not be involved even if Warner Brothers approached me. And I think Vin Diesel has, like, tried to sprinkle seeds for it because he wants everything he's ever done to be a franchise. Well, <laughs> yeah. You brought back Xander Cage. He's going to bring back the Iron Giant. I'll tell you what. The, apparently, yeah, Brad Bird's not on board with that. However, like, the ending of the movie totally sets up a sequel. Uh, but does it? It's more of just a, a happy ending. Like, you, you can't go through and just blow up the this character that you've grown to know the whole time and just leave it at that. Well, other people have. Again, go back to last episode, the end of Independence Day. Randy Quaid, our hero, sacrifices himself just like the Iron Giant. <laughs> Maybe they borrowed that concept from Independence Day. Who knows? Well, this, this wasn't the last episode appearance on the big screen of the Iron Giant, though. Oh, yes. Because in Steven Spielberg's Ready Player One, he plays a key role in the movie. If only in likeness. Well, he was actually just the backup plan. <laughs> like, they couldn't, Still. they couldn't secure the rights to Ultraman, so bring on the Iron Giant. That's interesting. I like that piece of trivia. Yeah. That'd be a good meetup. Hey! All right, let's stop the show. I got to go rewrite my pitch. Ultraman, <laughs> the Iron Giant, team it up. Yes. But yeah, so he doesn't want that. Most people, again, are probably happy with it. But at the same time, I feel like the film raises several questions or omits quite a bit of information that is there to be explored. So I'm curious to find out where we're all going to decide to take it. So, Jeff, what do you have for us? First of all, I am going to agree with our friend Eric and Brad Bird that I do not feel this movie needs a sequel, so I am proceeding under protest. However, I will begrudgingly submit a prequel, because I do personally believe that the ending was perfect, and it left us exactly how they wanted to, but I don't want to spoil all y'all sequels. So, my prequel, which I guess would have to be called something else, you can't call it Iron Giant 2 or Iron Giant... 0.5 or whatever. It's all ridiculous. So either way, it's a prequel that takes place on a foreign planet. There is a race of small, I describe them as pygmy looking to separate them from frog looking creatures. So these are more pygmy looking creatures uh, <laughs> that they live simple lives, but they're constantly picked on by larger species, people from other planets. They're just, they're just kind of like the um, yeah the, the 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 butt of the joke and the the ones that are always getting picked on and forced to do stuff for other larger bigger species so they decide instead to develop technology and so they develop these iron robots which they use to then defend themselves and eventually they become so good at defending themselves and building these iron robots that they end up becoming the bullies instead so they end up you know, they don't need to farm anymore. They don't need to produce anything because they are so powerful that now they can get whatever they want from all these other cultures. 
So one scientist, a younger scientist, has a real problem with this. So he starts trying to convince other people that we need to find or other scientists that they need to find a better way. This is contrary to who we are and who we started off being and yada, yada, yada. But nobody else will listen. So he decides instead he's going to, to build an even bigger robot, which we recognize as the Iron Giant. And the Iron Giant's job is to defeat all the other robots and basically force them back into their old lifestyle. But because he doesn't want the giant to just continue on in the same way, he builds in a conscience into the Iron Giant as somewhat of a safeguard. So he activates the giant with the command to defeat all the other robots. So he starts to, you know, fighting and defeating all of these robots. But then after a time, the giant himself starts getting an attack of conscience where he starts feeling like this is not right. Like, why am I destroying all of these robots? Like, does, does more destruction justify, you know, more destruction or whatever? So he decides against it and he flees. He's pursued by some of these other robots. And in this, like, climactic final battle, he wins but ends up crashing into Earth where we see that his memory chip comes out or, or whatever, like to introduce us into this original movie where he doesn't recall his, his past as a destroying machine. Iron Giant Begins. Yes, there you go. <laughs> Origins. Oh, okay. No, that's, that's a really interesting take on where he could have come from because that's a very important thing that in the original cut of the film, there is literally no explanation at all the giant, you know, just crashes into the water and comes out of the water. We learn nothing about him, right? Mm. And later on, see, this film came out in 99, like we said, people didn't really pay attention. But there was a remastered edition. Really? It's called the Signature Edition that came out in 2015. So huh. that's the one that you find on DVD and Blu-ray now. And in that, it was actually released to theaters in a limited run to promote it. But Brad Bird like, tweaked a few things here and there and then added a dream sequence kind of flashback. Mm. And that's where it actually gives a very, very brief glimpse as to where the Iron Giant came from and what his mission may have been. Have you guys seen that at all? Apparently not. Yeah, it's not in the Netflix cut. It's only on the DVD. So that is actually what I based my pitch on, but it's oh. very much in line with where Jeff's pitch came in. So this is going to be interesting. I called my sequel The Iron Giant Falling Stars. Taking place five years after the original, Hogarth is now a middle schooler and hormones have made him a troubled teen. Constantly <laughs> in tension and being picked up by the police for vandalism, Hogarth is always being reminded that he isn't living up to his father's legacy. You see, we learned that Hogarth's dad was a decorated Navy pilot who disappeared in a test flight when the boy was just five years old. We didn't hear anything about the father of the first film. We, there was just one one brief passing shot of him as a pilot getting into a jet fighter in a frame. But that's because he actually was the first astronaut sent into space by the government in a secret mission, but they lost contact and he never returned. Hogarth resents all father figures as a result, even his hip stepdad and junkyard owner, Dean. His only hope of happiness is reaching out via ham radio to try and contact his friend, the giant. But after years of trying, he finally gives up in frustration, feeling truly alone in the world. 
One night, while stealing a neighbor's car to go on a joyride, Hogarth catches sight of a giant, shadowy figure with two glowing eyes. But as he gets closer, he finds that it's not the familiar shape of his iron giant, but another, more mammal-like alien creature who could actually shrink down to human size. This well-spoken alien named Micron claims to be a space policeman who was sent to find the Iron Giant by the Giant's home race in an attempt to return him to his home planet. The two go on a journey in Micron's spaceship to find the Iron Giant, who is revealed never got the neck bolt back. You know, that bolt that was leaving Hogarth's window at the end of the film? The giant was searching for it across the frozen tundra of Antarctica with his head in his hands, but without metal to eat, he ended up being frozen stiff. After thawing out his friend, Hogarth notices something different in the way the giant looks at him. But he doesn't have time to ask questions once Micron begins firing a laser at the giant. Hogarth wrestles away from him, asking why he's going crazy. Growing to the giant's size, the two titans tussle as the giant's head bounces all over the place, at one point smashing a giant ice formation where the neck screw had been frozen inside. Micron responds to Hogarth's pleas to stop by explaining that the giant and his race are conquerors who animate their metal bodies with the souls of the dead whose planets they have destroyed. Micron is the last of his race and is on a mission to destroy all these iron giants in the galaxy in revenge. Hogarth has a moment of doubt before blasting Micron with the laser, causing the alien to retreat and claim that Hogarth has doomed the Earth. Flying back to Hogarth's home, the family notices the giant acting strangely, more mature somehow. He begins speaking with a different voice, which Hogarth and his mother recognize as the voice of Hogarth's father, long thought dead. The giant explains how his capsule was pulled deep into the vastness of space, and in his final moments, he was wishing he could see his family just one more time. He then found himself awakened, and his body replaced by a giant metal creation. And learning of the intention of this alien race to have him lead an invasion force to Earth, he went AWOL. In the process, he was hit by a meteor that damaged his main processor, causing him to crash in the ocean, as seen in the first film. However, it caused him to have no memory of who he was. Something in the unfreezing process, however, readjusted his circuitry and allowed him to remember his true identity. The mother and the giant share a tender moment as Dean looks on in disbelief. Hogarth, however, is conflicted, and his confused adolescent mind causes him to lash out at his father, berating him for abandoning them, and, and he runs off. Dean tells the mother and the giant to continue their reunion as he runs after Hogarth. And after having a heart-to-heart in the woods where Dean tells Hogarth how lucky he is to get a second chance with his father, an opportunity Dean never had after falling out with his own dad, the two see a shower of falling stars, one after the other, crashing into the ocean. But they ignore it and head back as Hogarth decides to reconcile with his father. And after sharing a few laughs telling stories about Hogarth as a toddler, the giant's eyes fill with sadness. Holding his wife and son in his giant metallic hands, he realizes he can never truly be reunited with his family. Meanwhile, on the shore of Rockwell, we realize the falling stars were not space rocks after all, but the doom spoken of by Micron. A platoon of iron giants rising from the depths. So as you can imagine at this point, the film essentially wraps up as they have this battle 
and the now Iron Giant father trying to defend his family and his town, battling all these giants, but he's outnumbered. Ultimately, Micron returns because he decides that if he can take out the rest of them, he will have fulfilled his destiny and avenged his people. So the two team up, they destroy all the giants. In the meantime, obviously, the Iron Giant is going to be mortally wounded. He's going to be finally destroyed once and for all. But they manage to save the Earth, and they have kind of this tender moment and goodbye where he wishes them all the happiness in the world, kind of passes on the family to Dean, says he's thankful he'll be there to take care of his son and his wife, who he loved, as his soul escapes back out of the body. And there you have it, the Iron Giant. Wow. And stars. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so like uh what was it dragon heart where he just goes off into the stars i am the last one yeah like that all righty jeremy uh i'm gonna do something very unorthodox on this show scrap my pitch and vote for adam <laughs> no 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 we gotta hear what you got no no that. no my mine was garbage it was <laughs> the iron tyke it was... No, no, I want to hear it. No. you got to give us something. Give us a teaser, at least. But Adam just brought these new concepts that were in the extended edition that I didn't know were canon. And it totally breaks whatever. It was kind of a blend of what you had, Jeff, and it would be a prequel, and we'd be following it on the on this planet off. From our Earth, you can see it's part of the Orion's Belt but mainly just following this robot, seeing where it came from and why it would leave that planet. But no, it's garbage. Total garbage. <laughs> garbage. Uh, well, the, the title alone had me going. I mean, yeah, I, I, that's good. Uh, that's good. All right. Well, I guess we got one vote in. I guess so. Jeff, well, are you I have to. Non-existent? I, I know it's 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 just by default at this point. Uh, but I am kind of surprised, Jeremy, because I know you had kind of talked about the end of the first one, and Adams is decidedly more somber. I mean, the the giant dies and his soul disappears and all. In a way, but there's closure. Yeah. <laughs> Is that what we really wanted? Or are we gonna be like, I'm gonna well, try that's what we're though. gonna talk about. You guys, you guys can change my pitch. That's what I'm saying. So, I mean, that's that's how it's presented, but that doesn't mean that's how it's gonna end up. Just like this movie was gonna be a musical, and they ditched the music. So let's see where we take it. But but Jeff, can I just say I'd love to vote for your pitch? I think you don't have any excellent. choice either. So. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, we can slap my name on Jeff's pitch. He can call it the Iron Tyke. There we go. <laughs> Except for my yeah. whole point was that he was supposed to be bigger than the other tykes. Ah. Yeah. Way. <laughs> I just think of that Futurama episode where it shows Baby Bender. <laughs> That's yeah. where I was going. That's the same thing? Yeah. 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 Uh, so, like, oh. I, I did like your concept, though, because it gives it a little bit more of an expansive thought and it almost feels like it could be just like you know the original has its footing and in, in some sort of allegory in a way there is you know the threat of communism and all that that's very overt in it but the fact that they're going to put that on this giant robot from outer space just immediately assume it's an enemy because it's different you know right. i like the idea that you were saying that this race 
got to where they were going to be because they used to be weak and afraid and then they were able to grow beyond that but then they took it too far like i think that's fascinating because that's what it shows in the extended cut deleted scene is literally these robots marching these ominous marching and then they're blowing up planets Mm. so it's like they're blowing up cities and everything on these planets so that's definitely what they ended up doing was just going and conquering that is just another layer to add to where he comes from is is that kind of information something we can put in as kind of a an intro or even like an extended intro type thing? Right, I think that's going to be part of the exposition that uh, Micron gives when yeah, he explains well, what he's doing there. I would agree, only because if I feel like if we do that at the beginning, it becomes the intro to Green Lantern, and that <laughs> just did not work yeah, out no very problem. well. So I don't want to go down that road again. Here's all this exposition up front. What? <laughs> well, it is Warner Brothers. <laughs> So speaking now, of Micron, what did you think about that character? Does that work for you? Well, yeah. I mean, now is Micron because it sounds like you were describing him. You said he was more mammal-like, so he wasn't a robot. Exactly. Or is he still a robot? No, no. He's 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 like you know a humanoid type alien, a shapeshifter of sorts. Or at least yeah, he can only... change his size. Yeah, so he's like Ant Man. Like, or at least like the villains from Power Rangers. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or Ultraman, or... as previously or mentioned. Or Ultraman. There you go. Or the villains from Ultraman. So, yeah, my only thought, and I don't know, I, I know you, you always put a lot of work into your names and your characters and stuff like that. Micron does sound like a robot. That's my only yeah. thought. I, I'm five, I will take some other names. I was playing on just the fact that he could shrink and grow, obviously. Mm-hmm. But okay. but I, I, you, we would spell it different, you know. Mike but, but no. Ron, literally exactly. M-I-K-E, last name R-O-N. My name is Mike, Mike Ron. There you go. But he could be uh, Glibnoid. You want him to be Glab, Glorg, Glorg, Orgnorgorg. Glorg. Uh, I like where, Glorg. where is that Star Wars <laughs> name generator at? Exactly. Yeah. Did we make a Romulan name at one point? We did. Uh, wow. Go way back. Wait, yeah. Just for clarification, I mean, because it sounds like his name is less important than what he looks like, because that's what people will remember about him exactly. anyway. Exactly. And uh, he would probably, like, the glowing eyes I mentioned, it would probably be, like, some sort of... Because the idea was that he was growing large because he was looking for signs of the Iron Giant. So he probably would have some sort of, like, glowing goggles that were helping him, you know, search right. for traces. or So that's why he looked like the Iron Giant from afar, you know. And, and it's, it's funny, too, and because... The way that you described it seems to be the way that I think you think or you're thinking about it. Yes, it does end with this huge big battle scene of all of these robots and then Micron and the Iron Giant fighting together and they win and blah, blah, blah. But it's that that that's not the point is that it sounds like, yeah, the point because that's again, that's what I think we love about this first movie is that the point has got to be that it's really about. I guess in this one, it would be about a father's love mm-hmm. and the extent of... Because cause what... If we had to sum up from the first movie, because I know I was seeing, again, Wikipedia was describing it as existentialism and you are who you want to be, mm-hmm. which I suppose is true, but I feel like there's also this journey that Hogarth goes on. Uh, who you choose to be. Choose to be, right. Yeah. Right. That's a key thing, especially for the robot, because it 
it does imply that the robot has some sort of free will exactly. or choice. So in this one, but then it's also this, there's also the foundation of that is the, this relationship between the robot and Hogarth and that, you know, he legitimately cares about this little kid and the little kid is like, Hey, I've got this cool new friend. And he really likes hanging out with him because he doesn't seem to have any other friends or something like that. So to have, so the neat thing is, is I think that's a very simple concept that is then kind of expanded into a little bit of the identity thing. So like for us, if, if we have that simple concept of the extent that the father is going to go to for the son, right? We're mm -hmm. becoming the robot, coming back, fighting all these robots, sacrificing himself, everything like that. But is there a deeper question that that could lead to? Well, the idea I was thinking, you know, like, yeah, like as far as the theme or what's it going to play yeah. into, it, it was it was more along the lines of, you know, because like obviously we're talking about Hogarth, the Iron Giant to a certain extent, and I believe Brad Bird even said this, was a father figure for him, even though he was like a mm. pet that he was training and teaching and all this stuff. But at a certain point, too, he was someone like a hero that he could look up to. You know, the again, the choice he was making to not be a weapon. And so so when I said that's kind of where I want to take this was like expanded. It's like he kind of had that and that it was taken away from him. And so the theme for me of this is sort of like that. You can't let that bitterness and your expectations take away your free will to be happy. And I think that's Hogarth's journey in this one is he allowed like that anger and feeling abandoned and everything else and hormones, like I said, you know, to turn him into somebody who he wasn't truly at his core. He was just hurt. He was sad. He was whatever. So when the, even the giant coming back doesn't necessarily make him happy, and then he finds out it's his dad and that doesn't make him happy. So it's, it's coming to terms with accepting, you know, the extent that family can go to for you that may not be always understandable to you or on your terms. Like that's what a lot of what I think Dean would be telling him when they have their, yeah. their talk in the woods, you know, and kind of brings him back in and say like, look, you know, I didn't have that chance, but you do. And look at all he's done. He was literally coming back for you along the way and just got sidetracked by a meteor that conked him. <laughs> now I'm trying to remember, were there any other children in this town? Yeah. He went to school. Yeah, there's the classroom okay. see where they watch the video, the atomic yeah. bomb video. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's very much a loner, kind of an outcast. Uh, Dad isn't around, so he's really the anomaly in that town, kind of picturesque New England type town. And at the beginning, we do see he's looking for a squirrel. He's captured, found, whatever, looking for a pet, something to hang out with, someone to be a friend to. And then the Iron Giant shows up and he befriends him to transition him to now being his father figure and not only losing both his friend and now father, that's uh, that's a twisted ending of sorts. Well, right. And so it's but it's that it's that idea, I think, that we're the conveying about the, the message that is left by his father. Ultimately, too, the Adam, I feel like there could be just almost that same message from the first one is that you are who you want to be because it could be it could you we could even go down that road of having Hogarth as a teenager you know doing that whole and feeling like I'm the victim feeling like man like right. my dad you know screwed me over and then the giant screwed me over and then 
man, I just can't get a break and everybody's always bagging on me or whatever. And it's just like, dude, you are who you want to be. If you don't want to be this guy, don't be this guy. I think that's a powerful message too. Yeah. So it's almost like he forgot, he forgot the message, you know, in between all that time. Yeah. So yeah. And I think that would work. And I think there's gotta be, you know, if we want to add a little bit more comedy along the way, at least at the beginning, I think there's also gotta be a storyline with Dean again, trying to play all American dad and he's just never Uh been good at it. You know, so Hogarth just gets more and more alienated from him, you know, and the mom's trying to help out. You know, something like that. And actually, I was thinking it may even play into it a little bit more in, again, because I think it'd be fun to have Dean as the other dad subplot is that you could have something going on where there's maybe like another like hunky guy in town is like hitting on the mom a lot. And, uh, and so like, you know, Dean's getting jealous and then the, this dad comes back and now it's like her husband is like the biggest, strongest you know, <laughs> creature around. So maybe initially you would see that on his face that he's just like, oh, I can't win. Uh, you know, just kind of like you could have, you know, just go out and be happy. You don't need me, dear. You know, like obviously yeah. there's other people for you that, you know, she shows her love for him. And I'm sure that the dad iron giant would figure that out as mm. he, Again, when he makes that decision, he's like, like, I want to be here, but it just wouldn't make sense at all, you know? So that's like, again, playing into like that ultimate sacrifice that he would make for right. his family to be happy to what would really make them yeah. happy. Now, is yeah. there a way, because I was reading something and it said, because if you think about like this first movie is like hardcore anti, I mean, even specifically anti-gun, not just anti-war, but they really make a point to say you are not a gun and apparently they said, was it Brad Bird? It was his, what was it, his sister? His sister was shot and killed while they were making this movie, which is why they decided to emphasize this. And it's actually done in her memory, this emphasize this anti-war, anti-gun message. So is there is there any way that we could do that final battle without doing a final battle? Mm-hmm. Is there some way that he could not, like that's the that's the climax is that he finds a way to not fight them well i think that could work in terms of like it could even be that the character trait and the reason he was maybe so gentle in the first film as his kind of broken form is that maybe they could say the dad was a pacifist like he had a history he was a fighter pilot of some sort but he literally almost never shot like he always found other ways to help win the battle or whatever it was like maybe he was doing it again to defend his family that's why he signed up but he never wanted to kill people that wasn't what he signed Mm. up for and so maybe in the final battle again it's him protecting his family it's him all these things microns coming in blowing everybody away you know doing all that stuff and he's trying to prevent you know because he understands that there's there are souls inside these robots that's how mm. they're animated you know people who didn't have a choice like him and so maybe yeah there's oh, like yeah. A, a deeper layer to it where he's almost trying to save them and it's not that they're all destroyed maybe it's that they're all somehow reprogrammed or something like that maybe it has to do with he figured out how he was awoken by the freezing process. So maybe they go in and they're able to like freeze all the robots and unfreeze them and wake them up or something like that. For self-sacrifice? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Because I'm if I'm feeling, I feel like for him to die at the end, so he's got to be in, like so much damage has got to be inflicted on him that he's going to die. Mm-hmm. And in the in Iron Giant, like that was what shook him up 
when he got into battle mode, well, one, it put him into battle mode and then it shook him out of battle mode was this idea of, uh, you know, caring and sacrifice and whatever. Like, would that be too cheesy to have? I mean, I feel like it would need a lot of setup or something to have like, yeah, Micron come in ready to blast these robots away and somehow like the giant sacrifices himself to save these robots. Would that do it? Is that not, I feel like that's not big enough. I don't know. Well, I, I feel like within that, what he should do is that he, yeah, he's trying to, you know, have that conversation with Micron. Obviously, Micron hates him, all those things, but this, and just, you know, but sees like, oh, he's fighting them right now, which he's not really trying to hurt them. He's fighting them off. And then at some point, one of the other robots in, you know, their battle mode maybe blasts at Micron and that, and he sacrifices himself to save Micron, you know, again, this person that totally hates you and you're taking, you're saving him mm. again, an example to your family and, you know, an example to this guy who has a change of heart, but then Micron's whole thing is like, well, yeah, let's now they've, they've, you know, mortally wounded you. We, let's get revenge. Let's kill them. And then that's what he tries to have that. He's telling him, was like, no, we can save them. Do you understand? Like you're so angry about what they did to your planet, but they're souls like me that are trapped, yeah. that have families and all this stuff. And then that's where they figure out, yeah, again, he's already wounded, but he's going to use every ounce of his, what he has left yeah. to release them or save them. So right? would, would it, leaving the earth be enough of a sacrifice, leading those guys away from earth? Yeah, but then you don't have that final moment with his son unless it's like yeah. over whatever but what what if i don't know if it would be too similar to the first but what if it was something where like micron had developed some like weapon or something some big like bomb or something that was going to kill all the robots at once mm -hmm. and that's what he stops the giant like you know jumps on it or you know the old Spock thing and taking too much radiation which doesn't make sense if you're a robot but i don't <laughs> and, know an emp EMP, yeah, he takes all of the, that doesn't make any sense, Electro, <laughs> he takes all the magnetic forces himself, it would go right through him, it's metal. Well, but what if he, he could modify something where, like, he has to take out, like, a core piece of his body that mm. could could turn it into an EMP instead, so that it, it, it deactivates the explosive or something, but it that it changes the blast to become an EMP, that that's what awakens them. Ooh. Yeah. 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 You're right. I, I see what you're saying. The force revolt makes it the most. Yeah. Again, like, but that, that was a good point you brought up, Jeff. Yeah. That, you know, we don't want the solution to be violence. And then it says so much more about his character. Right. And then again, it gives that example to. Well, and, and you got to think like an EMP wouldn't do much damage to anything, even infrastructurally at the time, because the first movie was set in 1957. So you're talking mid to early 60s. Mm -hmm. There's not really computers to fry or anything of that sort. So the robots would be the only things affected by an EMP. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah I like it. And I think it's that interesting thing, too, that like, like we've talked about a lot on this show, is that, and that's probably one of the things that was so unique about this movie, is that, yeah, that there's only really the one fight battle scene in that original, and you're not supposed to enjoy it. It's, the, it's a bad scene. 
So to make another movie where we're trying to not have action sequences is very un-Hollywood. And, and yeah, I like that. Shake it up a little for sure. Well, good. Well, how do we do, everybody? Why don't you find us on social media and let us know. Tell us how blasphemous it is. I know. Eric, <laughs> Eric, I tried, buddy. I really tried. I hope we, we, we did okay. Uh, we'll reach out to Brad Bird and hopefully he won't shame us too terribly. <laughs> Vin Diesel will be on board. He's like, let's do it. Like hey, it's it. only been twice was as long. Was that your Vin Diesel? That's my Stallone <laughs> that playing rough. Vin Diesel <laughs> in the Fast and Furious <laughs> Turkish remake. I don't Good. know. <laughs> but yes i think you know it's if we're gonna take it anywhere let's take it in that direction and i think it'll be pretty interesting so but yeah we're we did our best here folks it's all about entertainment this is a what if you don't have to get too passionate about it but if you are passionate about the movie we want to hear about it why do you love it so much where have you imagined it going ever since then and heck if you want to send out a pitch to us maybe we can even you know include it on a future episode of a little bit of follow-up we're thinking we might like to hear your pitches even if you don't want to be on mic send it our way we'd still like to promote it let people know what you were thinking about so with that please stay tuned because we've got a rip roaring schedule for you all sorts of movies maybe some you're expecting some you weren't uh <laughs> i mean we we got all we got napoleon dynamite 2 coming up well we've got jurassic park 4 that's oh, right got... Wait, aren't we already on seven by now oh, yeah pretty much <laughs> This 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 is a direct sequel to the original trilogy. So that's we're ignoring the Fallen Kingdom and uh, Jurassic World. This is a suggestion from a returning guest to the podcast. So you can look forward to that as and well. And if you want to prep for that episode, the first three are on Netflix now. What? Yeah, I've just that's watched awesome. all of them in the last week, and Ooh. oh my dinosaurs! <laughs> That's, uh, you know, that's what's going on in the world of Sequel Quest, but you got to tell your friends. Bring more folks on board. We caught a few more this week. I know they said, uh, they said, you know, one in particular was like, hey, you got yourself a new subscriber. We got so many movies you love. If you go back to the archives and find them, just uh, we'll post a link to pod, our Podbean feed. You can go in there and find them all. Go to the website. We're trying to do some updates, just so you know. Uh, we, we switched our hosting, so some of the links here and there might not connect exactly where we want them to connect, but we are getting that uh, situated so you'll be able to enjoy the past and look forward to the future of Sequel Quest. So until next time... <laughs> what was that? I am Superman. <laughs> that was in robot voice. In, in, now was that Turkish Stallone doing an impression <laughs> of a robot voice by Vin Diesel? I'm no Vin Diesel. Now you can really appreciate his talent. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Sequel Quest and invite you to join us next week for another discussion about a film that never was. Share your ideas with the Sequel Quest universe by visiting SequelQuestPod.com, following us on Twitter at SQPod, on Facebook by searching Sequel Quest, or sending an email to SequelQuestPod at gmail.com. Let the world know how much you enjoy the show by leaving a review and five-star rating on iTunes. 
iTunes. All films and characters discussed on Sequel Quest are the property of their respective studios and license holders. No copyright infringement is intended. 